Hello, and welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. This episode marks the beginning of a five-part series of interviews with a number of subject matter experts from Global Insurer and Reinsurer AXA XL. In this episode, we meet Maria Duhart, head of AXA XL's commercial bonds, political risk, and credit and bond practice, as well as Stuart Barrowcliffe, vice president and senior underwriter of AXA XL's political risk, credit, and bond team in the Americas. In this conversation, we cover rising hotspots for political risk globally and what that means for crucial investments in resilience and economic infrastructure. We also look at parts of the globe where investment is becoming more attractive, as well as the barriers and opportunities for renewable energy. Give it a listen. Welcome, Maria and Stuart. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, We're going to start off with a real quick primer. Stuart, let's start with political risk insurance. Can you give us just a brief explanation of how it's used and a real world example? Sure, Sandy. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me to this. Um, political risk insurance. It's used by companies that operate or manufacture internationally. Uh, they they face a lot of risks in foreign markets that they aren't familiar with. It's different than their home market. So traditionally, political risk insurance will help a company protect their investments, which would be you know any kind of manufacturing or even you know office uh, office space, office buildings from catastrophic losses caused by actions taken by a local government, things that would deprive them of their ability to operate, um, even expropriation of their entire company, uh, license cancellation, uh, export license cancellation, capital controls. Um, It's also used to cover physical damage losses uh, caused by political violence events um, real world examples, I mean, there are many, many U.S. multinationals have policies uh, in place that cover their their physical presence abroad. Um, and these policies can cover, you know, 10, 15, 20 countries or more. So, uh, you know, from chemical manufacturing to, uh, you know, cable manufacturing to uh, even, uh, you know, information uh, technology companies uh, are use, use this. Um, I mean, that's the traditional market. It's involved. It's evolved tremendously over the last, uh, let's say, 20, 20, 30 years. So today you find political risk and non-payment coverages included in the same policies. Um, and these are used to cover um, investors or lenders that are supporting, let's say, power projects. And usually in developing markets, power projects for as a as a good world. Uh, real-world example, power projects will enter into a contract to sell their their electricity to a government-owned utility. So there's the political nexus. You're selling to a government-owned borrower, and the policy would then respond in the event that there's a default, they fail to pay, um, and that protects you know both the lenders and the sponsors or the investment um, in 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 those projects. Great, thank you. That was that was great. Let's um, let's go to Maria and give us uh, a quick primer on commercial bonds. 
Yeah, thank you, Sandy, and thank you for inviting me as well. Um, so commercial bonds really work as a guarantee and, um, you know, of a company performing a certain action. Um, so it's a three-party agreement where you have um, our customer who is actually performing, you know, either a compliance obligation, a financial obligation, or a performance type obligation. And the bond is going to guarantee that to a third party who is the beneficiary of the bond. So, you know, commercial bonds are quite uh, varied, right? So they could guarantee, for example, um, a judicial process. So let's say a large pharmaceutical company might have been sued, for example, as a result of a class action lawsuit on a product that they sell, um, you know, and if they lose in the primary court, they can appeal to a higher court. In order to appeal, they have to post a, a bond to the court that guarantees that they're going to make the payments um, under that uh, and this, you know, once the case settles. So that's one type of guarantee, right? We also guarantee, you know, payment obligations such as customs duties. So a manufacturer importing goods um, from Europe or Asia that needs to pay duties to customs needs to post a bond um, that guarantees, you know, 10% of the duties that are going to pay in a given year. It also guarantees, you know, taxes, fees on imported goods. Um, it could also guarantee compliance obligations, right? That a company is complying with the, um, you know, specifications of their uh, operation within a certain state or a certain um, municipality. There's also environmental type obligations such as, you know, reclamation, for example, or restoration um, of a certain area, um, you know, to extract natural resources. So let's say a mine, right? Once the life of the mine ends, you know, the bond guarantees that the company is going to actually reclaim the land to the state that it was before, you know, reforest it and get it back to, um, uh, to a state, you know, that's where it's clean and there's no pollution as well. Um, it also could guarantee, you know, supply and installation of equipment or, you know, performance type obligations. So those are just some examples of how commercial bonds, you know, guarantee, um, you know, the work that our customers are doing. So both of these products, uh, very important for the, the volatile and, 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 and sort of crazy world that we're living and working in. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Um, Stuart, let's discuss the current level of volatility that you're seeing in the world. Um, give us some particular hotspots that you see having increased political risk over the over the next five years or so. Yeah, I think there's a, a political I mean, political volatility um, is is kind of what I would point to um, one of the one of the key areas of volatility. Um, you know, political changes, uh, looking at Latin America, for example, you know, Peru just had a presidential election and moved to the left. Um, you know, we have AMLO in, uh, in, in Mexico, um, more of a populist. Uh, uh, in, in Chile, we're looking at, you know, a, a very stable country, but a country that's now planning to rewrite their constitution, which uh, will, will change the document that's governed the country for a long, long time. Um, and in Brazil, we, we also have a populist nationalist uh, President, uh, you know, these kinds of changes can change the way the government treats foreign direct investment. And that's and that's where the nexus is between, you know, political change and volatility and and, and political risk. 
um, you know, some governments become more statist. They they want to go in and they want to take over private sector companies. We see, um, you know, AMLO in Mexico expanding, you know, the reach of the state into the power sector and trying to basically um, make it more difficult and limit the opportunities for private sector um, investment as as an example. So that changes the way that we look at things and and uh, and the way we analyze uh, the, the transactions we're asked to support. Um, another, let's say, hotspot or issue would be uh, something that's been developing for a while and will continue is, uh, you know, decline in globalization, um, weaker multinational uh, institutions. Um, you know, we always talk about a rules-based system. The importance of that is that that helps companies that are, are, are active globally, and I would say most of our large corporates are, that helps them understand, you know, the risks and how to operate and what the rules are and what they need to do to operate in, in, in you know, in certain countries or to trade. Um, and this is going to continue to be something that's a bit difficult. Uh, the, you know, the issues with China, the difficult relationship, it revolves around trade um, largely. And, and so that's, that's an area um, of, let's say, a hot spot uh, going forward, that there is, is really a weakening in the, in the uh, kind of the global system. Um, and then another uh, hot spotters element that I think will, um, you know, create and is creating volatility is, you know, the push uh, to decarbonize. In other words, go towards, become greener, become more renewable. Um, that's a structural shift. It's it's been going on for a long time, um, and as the shift you know continues, this creates opportunities. Obviously, in, you know for those that are investing in renewables, but it also creates some challenges for a lot of emerging markets that depend on hydrocarbons as their major source of revenue. So a good example would be you know a number of countries um, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, have dependent, you know, such as, you know, Angola is one, um, you know, Mozambique is another. They are looking to hydrocarbons to really underpin their economic development. Um, an example of a political risk issue is, is, is what has happened in Mozambique that has, you know, very, very large um, natural gas resources offshore, and obviously they want to develop it. Um, there's been political violence uh, in the north of the country which has actually put some of those major projects on hold and, um, you know, has led to um, some of the major investors kind of pulling back there. Um, others are already, you know, moving forward and a lot of them have taken advantage of and, and used political risk insurance to help uh, mitigate their risk profiles there. So you're kind of seeing this, um, some positive movement towards you know, decarbonizing and those types of things, combining with other countries that are working to build their economic pipeline and 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 dealing with their own political violence and just creating some of this volatility and these forces pushing pushing upon each other, it sounds like a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's a structural shift, uh, you know, in the energy sector that is, that is having an impact, you know, globally, right? There's a lot of investment, a lot of assets, a lot of uh, companies involved in hydrocarbons. And, you know, th there is a push and a shift towards uh, towards renewables. We see a lot of renewable projects, for example, in, in Latin America. A lot of countries have goals 
to you know shift over and have a much much higher percentage of their energy coming from renewables well that's uh, that's an opportunity for those um you know that are investing there that manufacture let's say you know wind turbines or solar panels but you know for those countries that are looking to develop to develop their um you know their hydrocarbons their their you know oil offshore natural gas uh, it, it it creates a it creates a challenge. It's a competition. Um, you know, oil prices now have shifted back up, not as low as they were, let's say, over the last five years. But clearly, the vulnerability is there, and you know, they don't have a diverse uh, economic base, so they tend to be concentrated and depending on one source of revenue, uh, you know, to basically finance their their development. Okay, Maria, are there areas that you have seen become less risky, easier to invest in um, recently? Yeah, Sandy, so to tie into what Stu was just mentioning, you know, renewable energy in the past um, was a bit more risky than it is now. Why? Because there's a lot more tax incentives and there's also mandates um, in states in the you know, U.S. Uh, net zero carbon emission goals, right? Um, and to move into, you know, renewable energy and away from um, thermal coal and other sources of, um, of energy, such as, you know, natural gas as well. And so, you know, there's, you know, some current structural factors that support the growth of renewable energy, um, such as, you know, policy support, as I mentioned, tax breaks, subsidies, mandates from the states. Um, some of these are shifting, you know, location, uh, especially in the in the U.S., you know, support from the federal government um, to state. So now it's more geared towards state mandates. Um, there's also increases in efficiency and, you know, sharp reductions in technology costs that have been allowing renewable energy to, to compete, compete um, you know, against cheaper sources of energy. So that has allowed us to, to, you know, see this industry as less risky as well. Uh, there's also, you know, vast untapped uh, offshore wind potential, right? So beginning to ramp up in the Northeast. Uh, so we see more customers, um, you know, bringing in wind turbines and installing them offshore, um, which actually is good because there has been some pushback on, you know, uh, customers not, or, you know, um, people not wanting those assets to be in their back backyard, right? That NIMBY, uh, so not in my backyard concept. So putting them offshore has worked really well. Um, then corporate uh, PPAs, which is the power purchases agreements, you know, are the contracts that we review um, to make sure that, you know, because we are really guaranteeing those contracts, right? Um, and the surety bonds guarantee the construction of the power facility and also other bonds cover the production of the power generation and warranties over many years. So as a result of that, we have to be comfortable with, you know, um, the industry and the financials, given that it's more of a long-term obligation. And we see also an uptick in battery storage technology, right? So that will provide a further boost, uh, you know, to this industry. Um, we support those manufacturers of battery storage, you know, through supply and performance bonds as well. Uh, so that was kind of one of the downsides of renewable energy, which has been addressed by that storage technology. Um, there's still some risk, you know, in the industry where you have some um, 
you know, vulnerabilities to changes in the political, you know, environment as well. So it could be a bit unpredictable. Um, but, you know, and like the rest of the power sector, you know, renewable energy policies and regulation could vary by state. Um, and then, you know, but at the same time, we see a lot more investment in renewables and a positive environment uh, right now. There's another segment that has also, uh, you know, we've seen reduced risk um, and that's, you know, home building, right? Uh, as more people are moving, you know, from uh, cities into, uh, you know, into more rural areas, right, or uh, suburbs. Uh, home builders were winners uh, during, you know, 2020 with, um, you know, working, people working from home, buying new homes, you know, so it's been, you know, actually a, a positive, I would say, if anything of the pandemic, you know, this uh, segment has benefited from it. While, you know, we saw that during the global financial crisis, uh, you know, as a result, of the bubble bursting, that was not a segment um, that we were looking to to support as much because it had you know higher risk, right? Um, so you know, just to give it some perspective, there have been some shifts into specific industry segments and and into you know either higher risk or 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 lower risk segments. Um, so you know, there's some expectations that single family home builders um, uh, building starts will rise as much as seven percent in 2021, and then multifamily homes, you know, will be you know will kind of be reduced in terms of investments. Um, but I think we see more opportunity there and we support them on, on bonds as well, subdivision and performance bonds. So, Are you seeing on the home building, because that's definitely been an interesting topic lately, are you seeing any issues with, um, you know, lumber supplies and, you know, th those types of, of factors coming in? Yeah, definitely a very large increase in pricing of lumber, right, and steel, which is utilizing construction, um, and some of it is passed on to the consumer, um, but some of it, you know, is retained within the, the, the home builder. But yes, we have seen shortage of supply and also increased pricing, um, you know, up to 30% in some cases, so it's substantial and it is contributing to a bit of inflation inflationary trends in the U.S., um, but we do see that subsiding towards the end of the year. So from our home builders and some, um, you know, as more supply comes in, um, we do see trends of reduction in, in pricing towards the end of the year. Well, thank you both uh, for sharing this time with me. It's been really interesting um, and fascinating hearing about all the work that you're doing. I really enjoyed it and I hope that we get to chat again. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks. Our pleasure to be here. Thanks, Sandy. Enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Bye. That was Maria Duhart and Stuart Barrowcliffe of AXA XL. Join us on our next episode where we continue the conversation with Maria and Stuart, covering the effects of COVID-19 on political risk and commercial bonds, as well as the investments AXA XL is making in sustainability and climate resilience. Thanks for listening.